Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. During World War II, Army personnel nicknamed U.S. Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall, Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson, and Major General James Ulio, the Heavenly Trinity. Why? Because the names of these three men appeared on all Army orders from Washington. Marshall and Stimson are well known today, but Ulio's role in World War II is less known. And today we want to explore that role, and to do that, we are sitting down with Alan E. Meshes, author of the book Major General James A. Ulio, How the Adjutant General of the U.S. Army Enabled Allied Victory. Welcome, sir. We are delighted to have you today. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, tell us about General Ulio's early life and the start of his Army career. Well, he was the son of a career Army officer who spent 40 years in the Army. He was born in 1882 at Fort Walla Walla, Washington, where his father was stationed at that time. And in fact, his father met his wife in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, he grew up there. And then he, when his father was at Fort Keogh in Montana, he was in high school. And that's in, he went to Custer County High School in Montana. And in those days, they only had uh, school through grade 11. And there were only four members of his graduating class. But they're a rather distinguished group. Uh, general Ulio became a uh, two-star general, and one of his classmates, uh, W.E. Elmer Holt, became the governor of Montana. So that was a pretty good batting average. From from there, from high school, he applied uh, to the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he was selected as an alternate. And unfortunately for him, he, there wasn't an opening, and he wasn't able to, to go to West Point. However, he decided, and being the, being the son of a career Army guy, he uh, went in as an enlisted man, and he spent about four years uh, as an enlisted man. Now, how does he get his commission? He took a series of tests, and eventually he was taken to uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he completed the test, passed the test, and not everybody who took the test passed. Ironically enough, there were six second lieutenants that showed up at Fort Leavenworth about that time who had just graduated from West Point. Julio got his commission about four months later than he might have gotten it had he gone to uh, West Point. Interesting. So he doesn't go to West Point, but he receives his commission roughly around the same time as young men like Joseph Stilwell, Douglas MacArthur, and Ulysses S. Grant III. Now, they all see periods of service in the Philippines and then World War I. As a young officer, does his career follow a similar path? Yes. Early in his career, he served in the Philippines and the Hawaiian Islands. And the Hawaiian Islands uh, tour of duty, uh, both those tours of duty were prior to World War I. And in the 1930s, he was back in Hawaii for a second tour there. During World War I, he was on the adjutant general's staff in France. He uh, rose to the rank of temporary lieutenant colonel. How does his career progress in the interwar year period? Very slowly. In fact, he rolled back to the rank of major after World War I. Part of that was the Army 
uh, shrank from 400 or from 4 million to 400,000. So there were fewer openings and uh, getting promoted was, was a tough go. In fact, he eventually came back uh, to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, but it wasn't until 1935 after 35 years in the army that he became a full Colonel. And then in 1939, he earned his first star as a brigadier general as a deputy adjutant general. Now, turning to World War II, March 1st, 1942, President Roosevelt promotes him to major general and names him adjutant general. What was the role of the adjutant general at that time? Uh, he had a very broad pro- portfolio during World War II. He was responsible for training, recruiting. He was responsible for the mail. He was responsible for all of the publications. And the thing he ultimately became probably best known for, casualty notification. And as you mentioned earlier, his name was on just about any piece of paper that the Army sent out uh, during World War II. Uh, he signed it, then it went up to uh, General Marshall, then it went to the Secretary of War. One of the things that he helped develop was V-mail. And mail was just a godsend to the soldiers, especially the ones overseas, getting a mail from home, their girlfriend, uh, good friends. That was very important. Well, the Army uh, had a ship those on the Navy ships, and it took a lot of space, a lot of, a lot of weight. So V-mail was a single sheet of paper that could be folded up into be an envelope. And the post office worked with uh, General Ulio and his staff, and they made V-mails a priority. So they got there faster. So people were encouraged to use them, the V-mail. And uh, Ulio was involved and even got President Roosevelt to send off the first V-mail to build the uh, momentum for the program. What struck me in your book was how interested he always was in the morale of the troops. And things like V-mail, I think, were certainly part of that. But he seemed very, very conscious of ways that he could do things to kind of help morale. One one of the uh, columnists who wrote about him said that uh, when the general talked about issues relating to morale and recreation, he did it not as a swivel chair theorist was his term, but through the eyes of the uh, young soldier that he used to be. And he came up through the ranks. And while he didn't have that West Point pedigree, he understood soldiers who didn't have a lot of money and how important low-cost recreation was and how morale. And having grown up in an Army home, not only was his father a career soldier, but his grandfather had spent 10 years in the Army. And his uh, mother's sister was married to a gentleman who was a, a West Point graduate and a brigadier general. So he he knew the Army from a personal side, and uh, that was very important to him. Now, let's talk about casualty reporting during World War II. You've mentioned that he's going to play a major role in that. How does he organize that effort, and what unique talents does he bring to that job? It's a very difficult job. Absolutely. Well, the answer to the back end of it, of your question he actually had a tremendous amount of compassion for the soldiers. He was a, he was a soldier and the army was his life. So, and nobody else, but the army was going to send out those casualty notifications. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of effort. And there were all kinds of volunteer groups that were willing to help. And he said, no, we take care of our own. So from that standpoint, what ha- what happened if there was a casualty in the field, missing in action, 
POW, a wounded soldier. That information came up. They sent it through on punch cards, which was the early uh, computer, if you will. And the information was retyped. And a staff checked it to make sure it was accurate, that they had the uh, correct next of kin, correct address, especially when it was uh, killed in action. They didn't want to make a mistake. They didn't want to call somebody up and say, your son was killed and it wasn't correct. So they, he actually instituted a policy that the last person to review this was a full colonel in the Army. After everybody else checked on it and before his name went out on a telegram. The other thing he did was, uh, as far as the telegrams, they were very tersely worded, just very short, brief telegrams. But Western Union wasn't permitted to, de- to deliver those uh, telegrams before 7 a.m., or after 10 p.m. The idea is you don't want to frighten somebody in the middle of the night with bad news. And that was another example of his concern for, for the soldiers and their families. And the other thing that came about, a follow-up letter would come and it would explain the insurance and it would explain any benefits and anything else that was related to, to the soldier. And none of those could be form letters. He absolutely ruled that out. And he had a staff of 50 people in Washington, who drafted those letters. Some of them were actually people who's, uh, who, who had lost someone in, in the war, and they were trying to help other families. So they had, he had like-minded people working for him and was adamant that, yes, there were certain things you had to say. Yes, there's a $10,000 life insurance policy, here's how it works. And more important, any information about the, uh, the episode. And sadly, as uh, the colonel who ran that shop for him, said sometimes the answer of, of what happened as a, to the casualty only lies with the enemy. Now, during the war, the U.S. Army is segregated. In 1944, though, Yulio issues an order forbidding discrimination at U.S. Army recreation facilities. Was he progressive on the issue of race or was he merely pragmatic? Well, I think, first of all, he wanted all soldiers treated fairly. But we also had a world of Jim Crow and segregation in this country. And I think it was a a pragmatic solution. And something that led to that uh, happened at Fort Hood, Texas. The Army um, had a contract with a local bus company to transport people around. And a black second lieutenant got on the bus one summer day and sat in the front seat. And the driver said, get in the back. And he said, no, I'm not moving. And he called his dispatcher and she used a racial epithet over the, over the squawk box. And they decided the best course of action was to take it to the military police. And they were pulled up in front of the military police uh, office at Fort Hood. And an enlisted soldier got on and said, is this the N-word uh, lieutenant we're having a problem with? Well, this young lieutenant had taken enough abuse and he exploded. He got very angry. And the next thing you know, they were court-martialing him. Well, he had a lot of character references. In addition, he was a fairly well-known figure, having been an athlete at the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. His brother was an Olympic uh, silver medalist who came in second to Jesse Owens, the 1936 Olympics. And the Army knew they had a less than terrific public relations situation. 
fortunately for this young lieutenant and the army, uh, he was found not guilty in the court-martial. Eventually, he and the army separated. Uh, on vo- He voluntarily left. He wasn't kicked out. And a couple of years later, he was introduced as number 42, now playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jackie Robinson. So uh, all of those things kind of came together. The thing I looked at was, this was 1944. This was 10 years before Brown versus the Board of Education. This was 11 years before Rosa Parks in Alabama said she wasn't going to move her from her seat on the bus. And it was uh, 19 years before Dr. King's uh, I Have a Dream speech in Washington. So the action was progressive. I'm not certain that anything other than the fact that he was a very practical guy. He needed soldiers. He didn't need issues. He wanted people to be successful. And he looked at, he was, he looked at the big picture. Now in your book, you also devote a chapter to women's service during the war. What role did he play in terms of the service of women in the army? Well, first of all, he was helpful in the recruiting process and the training. In fact, some of the original trainers were from the adjutant general's department. So they came out of his shop and he also attended the commissioning ceremony for the first group of women officers. The other thing he did that really had a long lasting impact on women's service and, and really in, in today's army even, uh, his team discovered that more than half of the military occupation specialty codes or MOS as the service called it, uh, women qualified for could actually do the job. Now, in some instances, those jobs were in combat zones and women weren't permitted in combat zones, but about half of the jobs women could perform. If you look at today's Army or the, the Air Force or the Navy or the Marine Corps, women handle jobs in wide ranges uh, of skills. And if they have the skills, they can do the job and they can get promoted and that sort of thing. None of that really would have happened if they hadn't identified in the early 40s the skills that they had. Because originally the idea of women that General Marshall had was let's get women in to handle a lot of administrative tasks. We can free up men for combat. And then then the thing they learned was they were spending a lot of time and effort training men how to type. When women had developed those skills while they were in school, they came in, they knew how to use a typewriter. They, They were stenographers. So they knew how to do take shorthand. They could help in a lot of different ways. And that was the early part of it. Then they found out that women also had very good technical skills, and they were used in a lot of different ways. Now, during the war through payroll deductions, the Army purchases about $80 billion of life insurance for the soldiers if they sign up for it. And as like a personnel matter, this fell under Yulio. And you mentioned in the book that in the early months of the war, 30,000 troops on Bataan were able to purchase this insurance via radio. And I, I I had not heard of that before, and I just thought that was so interesting. What other major policies or major accomplishments have we left out? Well, in relation to the insurance, one of the things that Julio stressed to his, his people and they to the commanders in the field was, I don't want to have to call up your mother or your wife and tell her, A, you died, and B, there's no life insurance because you did sign up for a few dollars a month. So he really stressed that. And as a result, 
more than 98% of the enlisted personnel who were overseas and 99% of the officers who were overseas signed up for the insurance. So that that was a, uh, especially for the 300,000 soldiers who lost their lives in World War II, that was a tremendous help to their families. And it was very impactful. I mean, $10,000 uh, worth of insurance was a lot of money to a guy making 50 bucks a month mm-hmm. as a soldier. So that, that was a big part of it. If your question relates to other things that he might have done, uh, one of them was awards and decorations were part of his responsibility. And they expanded the number of awards they created. For example, if a soldier was wounded, they got a Purple Heart. If a soldier died in action, a Purple Heart wasn't awarded to the family. He fixed that. He changed that. And the family member received the soldier's Purple Heart for the family. Uh, he also added uh, the Silver Star Medal, and because there was so much uh, activity in the Army Air Force, he added the Air Medal and set the criteria for those. He also was involved with uh, the only dog to receive um, medals in the Army, a dog named Chips, a uh, German Shepherd, who was in Italy. And uh, he saved the lives of a number of soldiers by uh, barking when the enemy was on site. He was wounded in action. He was awarded by his commander, the Purple Heart and the Silver Star. Well, a lot of people felt that it was wrong, that a dog should get a medal. Uh, People didn't always get medals. And so they pulled the medals. Well, that blew up in a public relations snafu. And uh, the general made a decision. He said Chips could meet, keep the medals, but no other dogs in World War II would be receiving any medals. So he solved problems in a practical way, and he approached problems solving that way for everything else he seemed to do. His job wasn't public relations, but it seems that the Army really relied on him frequently to kind of solve these public relations nightmares. Yes, he uh, he he did that a lot. He uh, he would he would speak out uh, to try and encourage people to join the army. He was he was in the forefront of the effort to lower the draft age to increase the number of soldiers because they needed to get to eight million. And initially, the objective was to take soldiers or, or draft people who were over twenty one who didn't have families. Well, General Hershey, who ran the Selective Service, pointed out they were going to start to run out of over 21-year-olds who didn't have families. And at an American Legion convention in 1942, General Yulio watched as the American Legion put out a resolution advocating that. Now, Yulio himself didn't speak on the issue at the convention, but shortly after that did a national radio broadcast urging young men to sign up, uh, getting parents to to agree to let their sons enter the army when they were under 21. And he pointed out some of it was patriotism and some of it was kind of a challenge because the Russians and the British had 18-year-olds in the fight. And the other thing the army knew was that 18-year-olds were in a little better physical condition. Well, it was all part of a process because shortly after Yulio spoke, General, General Hershey publicly said, hey, we're going to run out of folks that don't have families that are over 21. So we need more troops. And President Roosevelt addressed that in one of his fireside chats. 
And then they took a vote on it in Congress. And they were they knew that there might be some problems on the home front with younger men being called to service. So they helped the Congress a little bit by ha- holding the vote after the election of 1942 so they could get past that. And I don't know that Julio sat down and plotted that all out. But if you look at it in retrospect, it was a pretty well orchestrated uh, process. And we what it resulted was we got more soldiers. We needed more soldiers. The other part of it was from the PR standpoint, as the war was getting closer to an end, people were saying, well, we don't need all these soldiers. And Julio said to the, the media, hey, I'm still sending telegrams. We need them. The war isn't going to be over tomorrow. And part of it was that Julio, like so many people in Washington, wasn't aware of the atomic bomb. The thought was we were taking troops from from Europe after the war in Europe wound down. We were putting them on ships and sending them to the Far East. And most of our ships stopped somewhere between Hawaii and the Philippines. And they never they never had to go because the bomb was dropped uh, in, over Japan. What was his relationship like with MacArthur, Marshall, Patton, Eisenhower? With MacArthur, my feeling is it was quite a distant relationship. At the American Legion convention that I mentioned, Ilya was there to accept an award on behalf of MacArthur. MacArthur was a little busy. He was in the Pacific, so he couldn't uh, be in Kansas City for the presentation. And later he succeeded uh, General MacArthur on the Board of Trustees of Pennsylvania Military College, and he served on that uh, board of trustees for five years. Now, his relationship with President, uh, General Eisenhower was a little bit more informal because he was, Julio was commissioned 11 years before Eisenhower received his commission. So until about 1940, he he outranked Eisenhower. And in correspondence with, with a uh, fellow general who was in the adjutant general uh, staff in Europe, he would say things like, give my regards to Ike. I doubt if he would have ever said, give my regards to Doug, if he was talking about General MacArthur. Right. Eisenhower, he he worked with Eisenhower occasionally on some PR things. He would help him write letters that Eisenhower would direct on his behalf. When he received awards, he made sure they were shipped to Mrs. Eisenhower so she had them for safekeeping, uh, things of that nature. With... uh, General Marshall, um, it was a subordinate boss relationship. He, his department drafted the orders that Marshall signed, so he was the final sign-off before that. Uh, in the Marshall papers, there's not a whole lot of copies of correspondence between General Marshall and General Ulio. So I also would surmise that there were probably was some of it was just walking down the hall and say, "Hey, take care of this kind of thing." With Patton, it was it was a little different. Uh, Patton could turn on the charm when he wanted a favor, and it would be a dear Jimmy letter. Sometimes he wrote it Jimmy J I M I E, or sometimes it was J I M Y. He wanted his orderly. Orderly was kind of like a butler for the general. He wanted him transferred. And one time he sent a note to Julio and said, "I might not even be able to find my pants if it weren't for uh, the sergeant. So you got to get him there." And, Julio took care of making that transfer happen. But then uh, Patton being Patton, he could be a, a political 
he could be a, not a political, but a public relations nightmare. Uh, he addressed a group of wounded soldiers in the United States, and he talked about they were the heroes and the ones who died were fools. Well, Gold Star families, those are the families of, of service members killed in action, did not appreciate that. And the problem got dumped on Julio's lap. And he said what the general really meant was problems with perchances of war. Um, I don't know that he really could have cleaned that one up because if you were the father of a son who was killed in action, I don't know that anything you could say could ever make that go away. But that was the role and he took care of it. You didn't hear General Patton going back to the media and saying, I meant to say he didn't. In 2020, General Yulio was named to the Adjutant General Corps Hall of Fame. How would you define his legacy? Well, first of all, the he General Yulio was the first soldier ever inducted into that Hall of Fame whose service preceded the Vietnam War. And the Adjutant General's position dates back to General Washington's Continental Army in 1775. So I, I was a little surprised that he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. And people I've talked to in the Army were a little surprised. But his legacy was he took care of the soldiers uh, from everything from the time they got into the Army to realizing that when millions of soldiers were going to be returning home, he set up a process that actually is utilized today of training and preparing the soldiers for their return to civilian life. They had new skill sets and they and the job market was going to need to know what those skill sets were. So that was a big part of it. His uh, impact on on the racial issues, his impact on helping augment women into the army. His legacy is 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 wide. I talked to two generals who had that position in this decade, and they were both quite surprised about all that he had on his plate. And the only thing the two of them really knew about him was that his picture was on the wall in their conference room. And I also talked to one general who retired about 20 years ago, and he was inducted in that Hall of Fame the same day General Yulio was. And he said he just couldn't believe all the things he had to do. He certainly had a very complicated job, and it seems that he did it with a lot of intelligence and a lot of compassion. Yes, um, that he did. If you're really interested in learning more about it, the book is available at Amazon Books, Major General James A. Ulio, U-L-I-O. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you today, Amanda. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. And thank you for all the research you did to help um, shed some light on General Ulio's contributions. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.